It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name is Kay Winningle and I'm joined today by my co-host Natalie Bucknell. Hello listeners, hello Kay. And Michael Steindl. G'day everyone. Our countdown to the release of BZE's Electrifying Industry Report continues today. As you may recall from previous shows, the report will be launched on September the 13th at the Melbourne Synchrotron. The launch is part of an all-day summit for manufacturers to access information and networks to assist in improving energy efficiency and reducing costs with renewable energy. Today we're going to be talking to two more of these Electrifying Summit presenters. Timothy Hoban, a project engineer with Net Zero Monash University, and Will Mosley from Raygen, will be on a panel called Electrical Industrial Heating. It's fantastic to have the opportunity to showcase some local initiatives that are effectively tackling emissions. Hi, Timothy. Hi, how's it going? Hi, Will. Hi, Kay, Michael, Natalie and listeners. Oh, well done. <laughs> <laughs> You've been practising. <laughs> so, Will, tell us about Raygen and your new product, PV Ultra. Yeah, so Raygen is an Australian-made and owned uh, technology company. And it's been developed uh, in Australia for sort of the Australian market for both heat and electricity. So what we do is we're a solar technology which has a field of mirrors that focus sunlight onto a tower. Now, you've probably all seen that before. What we do that's different is we have a photovoltaic panel using satellite cells from space atop the tower. So we convert the light directly to electricity. And then because we have to cool this panel, we generate heat as a byproduct. So a typical solar thermal goes sunlight to heat to electricity, what we do is go sunlight directly to electricity and have heat as that byproduct. Okay, and this um, prime thing about this is it greatly increases the, the performance, the output for a given investment. Yeah, correct. So a typical solar panel might be 10 to 15% AC electrical efficiency. Its cells might be about 20% efficiency. Our solution has cells that are 40% electrical efficiency, um, and our solution is about... 40. Correct, 40%. So u- using the, the absolute best in class... Um, and uh, the, the, the total solution is about 25 to 30% electrical AC efficiency, but then the rest of that energy we actually capture as heat. So of the light that hits our receiver, uh, a significant proportion, over 80%, is actually utilised for revenue products for customers. So can you briefly describe an installation because your um, description talks about heliostats and towers and so on? Yeah, sure. So we have a couple of installations, uh, several in Bendigo and, and one in China. And what that means is we have a field of mirrors. Uh, each mirror is about 20 square metres. And we focus, and the mirror tracks across the sun over the day and focuses the sunlight onto the receiver. Single it, or two axis? Uh, two axis tracking. Uh, and also, we, uh, there's no field wiring and they're fully autonomous. So they're installed into the ground, no mm-hmm. concrete foundation, no electrical wiring, and all the energy is reflected up onto the towers. So there's no sort of residual heat captured in the mirrors. So you, can, you mentioned that you can have sheep grazing underneath. 
and, and, and that's fine. But I think one of the arguments about um, solar installations has been that the natural habitat has been interrupted by these massive concrete um, platforms that the mirrors sit on. That's not the case in your and, and with all the black panels absorbing the heat, you get a heat island effect and so on. Yeah, correct. That's a real concern in the community, and there's a lot of debate about the, the academic research. What what we do is we ensure that the light is reflected off the mirrors onto the tower um, and convert the light directly in, into the electricity and heat, and we use that heat in a neighbouring facility. But more than that, because we have such a high efficiency of, of the sunlight utilisation, it means we need about a quarter of the land. So it means that we need less land, but we also use it um, with a much lighter footprint. And we have sheep grazing underneath. We actually like having the sheep grazing underneath because it keeps you know, the grass <laughs> down and, and, and our costs lower from, from mowing. The other thing with that is that you've got a solar-charged motor to access tracking as using solar, yeah, we, which I thought was quite elegant. Yeah, we have a small silicon solar panel, so we use you know, the best solution as required. Uh, and that has a small battery in it as well, so it tracks the sun across the day. One of the ways we've managed to save on cost is we use quite low precision drives uh, and and then we have a very sophisticated software solution developed in Australia that gets a really high performance out of those drives uh, and it means also that all of the electricity is converted and created in the in the tower um, and so that means that uh, there's no electrical wiring in the field if there's a floodplain we can install on a floodplain as well looking at researching this I was just absolutely staggered at the brilliance of it the modern generation of the old dish idea using the expensive but very small area of solar cells being able to use that such high temperatures by cooling them what sort of heat is generated out of this how useful is that heat the temperature of the heat is approximately 95 degrees celsius so right now that heat is really perfect for dairies that need to pasteurize or food processing or or abattoirs that need to do sterilization and the other attractive thing about that temperature is it's really easy to store. So our electricity we produce is intermittent, like every other solar technology. The beauty of the, the heat is that it is fully storable. So we put it into a, a hot water tank and use it in the factory. So could it also be used for something like CST, concentrated solar thermal? Oh, for storage, absolutely. So one of the things we're looking at, and, and we've we've recently sort of been developing this product, the solution is that, in order to convert the heat into electricity, we have a reasonably low efficiency. So one way we're going to really improve that is by reducing the temperature of the cold side of a heat turbine. And so our electricity at a very high coefficient of performance is going to generate the electricity, it's going to generate cool, an ice block, and then we're going to combine the heat and the ice together to generate electricity at a higher efficiency to generating more electricity than we put into the initial process because we're utilising that heat as well as the ice together. Mm. So is that something that's still under development or is that something that you're doing now? Yeah, so we're, we're actively developing it and, and we expect a pilot by 2019. It's not our commercial product. Our commercial product right now is electricity and heat directly for regional um, food and beverage manufacturers. So that's where we're really focusing our commercial side, but we really see this as a great growth opportunity. So you say regional because you need space for your pen, uh, for your mirrors and... And pole? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're a pole in a paddock design, so um, and our infrastructure of the pole is, is actually a mobile phone tower. We typically need to be within five kilometres of the end use for, for sort of utilisation of the heat. However, if there was a district heating network like there is in, uh, in China or in the United States or in Europe, we're able to get well within the urban environment. So there just needs to be a transport mechanism for our heat 
At the moment, that doesn't really exist in Australia, but there is opportunity over time for that to occur. So you were talking before the show, Will, about some of the temperatures involved in, mm-hmm. in your setup. Can you explain to the listeners about that? What sort of sun concentration are you achieving on the, on the panels? Yeah, it's quite an impressive. So it's 900 suns concentration. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty significant. And it's a beam strong enough to melt steel. And we're putting you know, an organic mix of, of cells and, and light and, and other materials. And uh, you're shining those suns onto a steel tower. Correct. Oh, well, we, we, we have a very great cooling system. But it's equivalent of, I, I think, for, for listeners, a typical solar power is about one match, lit match, over an A4 piece of paper. What we do with the concentration is it's about 18 of your largest gas burners on your stove on the A4 piece of paper. And we still have to have that running below the cell operating temperature. So we have a photo, a video of our founder um, with a blowtorch on the module and it's able to run cool. Mm, Each of those modules, for instance, it's 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres and there's 6,500 watts. So two and a half kilowatts of electricity and four kilowatts of heat. On 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres. You want to make sure you've done your sums right, don't you? <laughs> and that the cooling cycle doesn't doesn't seize up. Well, I love the focus you've put on um, using standard technology. Um, you mentioned you're using standard phone towers, um, which decreases your cost. But you also stress that you're using quite low-cost mechanics and over with rough tolerances, but great long life, but you're overcoming the um, lack of accuracy by nifty software. Tell us about that. Yeah, so our typical field is about four square metres for three megawatts of our modules, and then we need about 3,600 square metres of mirrors. So about 99.9% of our solar area is just these mirrors, and they need to be really, really low cost. And the beauty of it is there's existing supply chains for mirrors and existing supply chains for the motors. One way that we get really high performance out of those mirrors is through elegant design solutions and elegant software solutions. So we're able to know the, every position of every heliostat over the course of every day, and that's not just based on really precision instruments, but actual optical imaging uh, that we have at, at the front face of the receiver. And Sorry, how many heliostats are you coordinating there? Yeah, so about 273 uh, heliostats for a 3 megawatt cogeneration solution. Uh, mm-hmm. Each mirror is about 20 square metres. And that's sort of focusing onto this four square metre area. And we make sure that the, the image of each of those heliostats is blended across the front face of the receiver. So we get full utilisation of every module. We just don't have the centre modules running really high and the edge mm-hmm. modules running mm-hmm. really low. So you're saying that, that this solar energy is supplied at a lower cost than natural gas. What sort of cost are we looking at? Okay, so typical natural gas that a, a large customer might be paying, let's say, is about $11 a gigajoule of addressable spend. Uh, our solution, you, you're sort of looking at the point around $8 a gigajoule um, as a price point, and that's prior to subsidies. So certain states have subsidies. If they do, they, they're generally about $2.50 a, a gigajoule. So it means our price point is about $5.50 per gigajoule, and that's about half the price of natural gas. Um, and the beauty of it is it's on demand, directly integrated into their solution, and we don't have to sort of do a, a – they can retain their existing capital infrastructure, and we just have a really simple heat exchanger with their existing water flow. Um, so, you know, you've got a, a dairy that needs to do pasteurisation, straight into their solution. Very, very low tech, very, very low risk. So the, supplying energy in the form of heat, mm-hmm. what, what percentage of our energy consumption is used in this way? 
It's actually a pretty significant line. I think Timothy will speak to this as well. But, um, you know, effectively a third of Australia's energy requirement is for heat and provided by gas. A third is electricity and a third is transportation. In fact, most commercial and residential um, buildings, a majority of the energy used is for heating and cooling uh, and in, in the form of natural gas. So this is a really significant problem and it's one where we're not seeing a lot of solutions. So there's the heat pump solution, which Tim will talk to, but... There's very limited other penetration. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing solar, we're seeing you know, hydro and panels and turbines, wind turbines, but we're not really seeing that sort of adoption in, in the heat side of the problem. And for a third of our total problem, it's pretty significant mm-hmm. that we need to start putting some solutions in. Um, and, and we're able to come in with a lower price point than existing natural gas, mm-hmm. um, which is quite attractive to, to our customers. So you need to be able to bring it into the urban areas as well, like Denmark has. Absolutely. We'd love to follow the model of Denmark. So Denmark has two gigawatts of solar heat. And this isn't a country with great solar. And they have two gigawatts of solar heat, just uh, hot hot plate collectors. But in order for them to get uh, the heat into their winter months, they have dams that are filled with hot water during summer. And then they run through the streets with um, underground piping that provides all the houses with, uh, with heating during the winter months. So they store the heat from summer through to winter. It's a really clever idea from those days. That's mm, and very cost-effective yeah. too. Just, uh-huh. just a final question on the uh, scale of this. Um, well, will it's it's between um, the small um, PV setups, uh, domestic and say factory roof and so on, and the large-scale CST where you need square kilometres of mirrors. This thing, it's not something that's suitable for your domestic backyard. It needs more scale than that, doesn't it? But it's still. It can just run in a paddock or a couple of paddocks. Yeah, what we'd like to say is if there's any listener that would like it in their house, band together with about 100 of your uh, neighbours and, and we'll provide a solution to the group of you. The, the challenge is that the, the way in which we've separated collection and conversion really makes sense on, on a reasonable scale, which is sort of about the, the, the quarter of the megawatt, which we've demonstrated in Bendigo in multiple places. If we need to go larger than that, we just have more and more towers strung together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a solution. So it really is a great solution right now for large food and beverage manufacturers, but there's a lot of other opportunities coming out of this. So, Will, just quickly, what are the markets? Where are they for you? Yeah, sure. So our first target market is the Australian food and beverage sector, uh, which uses a lot of heat, a lot of electricity in a regional area. But over time, we see a significant opportunity in not only in heat provision through district heating networks, but also in freshwater cool, fresh water using multi-effect distillation, in chilling, so air conditioning effectively, using um, absorption chillers, these are off-the-shelf products, but also electricity storage. So where we can't find a use for the heat, we use it to boost our electricity storage. And we see a lot of opportunity in, in China for district heating and cooling, mm. the Middle East, in the US, and also in South America. So Fantastic. a lot of opportunity, and, and Africa as well. Fantastic, it's that's brilliant. brilliant. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Will Mosley from Ragen and Timothy Hoban from Net Zero Monash. So coming to you, Tim, Monash University declared in 2005, I think it was one of the first universities that did make a commitment to reducing its carbon footprint by about 20%, I believe. And since then, um, it's now just recently said that it's going to go net zero by 2030. Yeah, so in 2005, we uh, announced our first energy reduction target. And then from there, we've got a bit more ambitious. And last year in October, we announced we're going to try and reduce our emissions to zero by 2030. That's fantastic. Well done. Yeah, great. How are you tracking? Great at the moment. Got a massive solar rollout at the moment. About four megawatts are going out across our four Australian campuses. Lots of effort being put into 
reducing our uh, energy usage through energy efficiencies, LED lighting upgrades, and then our power purchase agreement, which we've just announced recently. So you've got existing buildings and new buildings as well? Yeah, so we uh, manage about uh, 150 buildings across our four campuses and because the university is growing at such a massive rate, we're basically putting a new one every year and the next year I think we're putting in two So, and they're pretty significant sizes. Uh, I think the last one was about 30,000 square metres. So, yeah, pretty big buildings. Wow, yeah. So has it, has it changed much what your requirements have been for your buildings? Yeah, our new buildings, we're really trying to push the bounds with those ones. Looking into passive house design methodologies, so really trying to reduce the heat flow between the internal and outer, uh, outside air, um, really making them really airtight and keeping them as you know efficient as possible. So is it the type of building materials you use, double glazing, sealing it, as you say? Yeah, a bit of everything. Um, the way I like to describe it is it's kind of like a winter jacket. Um, so it's like three layers essentially. So you've got your external layer, which is your nice waterproof layer that makes sure that no uh, water is getting in or any uh, sort of fluids getting in. Then you've got your nice insulating layer, and we try and make that as thick as possible. And then your internal layer is really this airtight membrane, trying to make sure that there's no heat transfer. Um, and there's other other few things, such as trying to reduce thermal bridges and double glazing and all those things. So because heat is the most significant, heating and cooling is the most significant energy usage in our buildings. Yeah, basically trying to reduce that as much as possible. How Jim. about how about the problem of a lot of traffic going through? I know in our household that, you know, the refrain in winter is always to shut the back door when you come in. And in um, universities, that would be with, <laughs> Yeah, that would be exacerbated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's interesting. Um, some of our old buildings, uh, to get around that, basically we put in those big spinning doors as you enter mm. the building but we didn't really get it right the first time we went for quite small doors in our Menzies building when we were retrofitting it and oh the students hate them because if you walk too quickly then they stop and everyone gets trapped so our newer buildings just going for much larger ones of those and then big airlocks as you walk into the building to try and prevent the amount of air uh, conditioned air falling out of the building. Yeah. Tim congratulations to Monash um, this uh, you're showing the sort of leadership that's sadly lacking elsewhere in the nation, so it's it's brilliant to see. Um, there's five pillars to the Monash strategy, as I understand it, one of which is the on-campus dynamic grid, which will coordinate multiple sources of renewable power. What are the renewable sources you're going to link into the, that grid and what percentage of your consumption will it cover? So that's on our Clayton campus. So that microgrid is really looking at basically pushing the bounds in not just reducing our energy usage, but also being able to move it around. So at the moment, the grid basically... However high the demand is, basically supply just gets turned on to match that. So you get sort of your gas-fired peakers coming on when it's really, really hot to try and meet that load. What we're really looking at is in a situation where that load's getting high, rather than turning on more and more demand, actually looking at basically shifting down our demand so mm-hmm. that and being able to control that, which has a whole bunch of benefits uh, to it. That's focused on sort of one third of our Clayton campus, basically the way that uh, we've got a HV ring main that runs around the campus and it's split into three loops. So we're just focusing on one loop there. Mm. Um, And the buildings on that ring are really quite replicating a sort of small community. So you've got a whole bunch of different loads. You've got industrial loads, you've got um, like a sports and rec centre, some teaching and some student halls of residence. So really trying to model a community with that one so that the lessons that we learn from that are innovative uh, system can be applied to the wider grid. Tim, you just mentioned power purchase agreements, and we've been discussing power purchase agreements with a number of uh, other companies that have been undertaking them in recent weeks. Can you tell us about your arrangement? 
Yeah, so we've um, joined the consortium buyers for the Marawara Wind Farm, which is going out uh, in Western Victoria, and we're really excited about it. So we're in bed with Telstra, Coca-Cola, Amatel and uh, Melbourne Uni, basically going all together allowed us to get a much better price uh, for that energy. Um, and that's going to cover 100% of our um, electricity load and should be ready to go by the end of 2019. So it's 100% of your load. What happens if the load changes? So basically, we're forecast to grow quite significantly with new buildings coming online, again, trying to keep them as energy efficient as possible. But the energy efficiency that we're rolling out across our existing stock of buildings is likely to offset the amount that we're growing at. Uh, growing at. So trying to sort of manage those loads in a way that allows us to keep pretty steady. And the demand management you mentioned before too. Exactly mm-hmm. that, yeah. Being able to shift our loads around a little bit uh, should assist us in keeping that load pretty steady. You weren't considering a raging product? Unfortunately. <laughs> until today. Until campuses. today, yeah. Unfortunately, um, all of our campuses are now sort of urban campuses. We did used to have... Um, the Gippsland. Gippsland mm. and Berwick, and there was quite a bit of significant amount of space at Berwick. We had some big solar PV arrays out there as well, but we've recently sold those campuses to Federation Uni, so mm. I think they might have to explore those options. So what have been some of the challenges to this Net Zero initiative? One of the big things is being able to basically switch from gas and immediately people get a little bit scared when you talk about uh, shifting completely away from the way that we've traditionally done things. Um, the infrastructure we've got on campus is quite gas intensive, so being able to convince uh, everyone that it's the right decision, but um, gas prices tripling last year really assisted us in uh, winning that argument. <laughs> Yeah, well done, guess. <laughs> so just making a declaration doesn't make this stuff happen, though. What policies and resources have been needed? Um, yeah, so making the declaration definitely helps. It allows us to sort of, uh, when we're... We found that um, in the past, with when we're doing new buildings and things like that, um, sustainability features are quite uh, the kind of the first thing to be value managed out. Um, so being able to tie it back to the financing, uh, so saying that uh, one of our new buildings is actually being financed through a climate bond, um, With a what? Through a climate bond. Oh, yeah. Uh, so essentially it's green financing coming in uh, the door. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the capital that's being provided for the new building is tied to the performance of the building, mm-hmm. which has really assisted us to basically, when we have those value management arguments, to mm-hmm. be to really say, to have that lever and basically say, look, no, we can't get rid of the solar panels because that's where the funding's coming from. We need that performance to actually achieve these, this mm-hmm. particular target in order for us to basically be, continue to be certified. So those climate bonds government or, or um, private? So that, it, it was actually pushed by our finance department, which was really interesting. So they were looking for new financing options and it basically these there's a big demand for uh, green bonds and climate bonds and it um, allowed our the <sighs> university's finance to enter the US market, which was something that they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a great source of capital and it, it's really great for our team because it allows us to push our agenda a lot harder. And how do the finances stack up on the changes that you're making? Like what sort of return on investment do you get for the improved efficiencies and and the different um, energy you know contracts that you've set up yeah so the the university wouldn't have led us to do it if it wasn't financially viable so um, we have a pretty strong business case and um one of my favorite things is that the power purchase agreement uh, that's looking to save us money over time so essentially you know renewables have won the won the battle it's going to be cheaper for us to get that renewable energy uh, renewable electri- electricity through than it will be to continue to buy grid power so yeah that's quite exciting. Talking of which, you mentioned that Monash 
will be a, like Raging will be a solar power generator at some stage soon. Yeah, so essentially um, with that power purchase agreement and also with the amount of solar that we've got on site, we can register as a solar power station and start generating renewable energy certificates under the government's renewable energy target. Um, and it's basically just an extra revenue stream for us to then hopefully invest that back into more renewables um, as we keep going. And the market for our large generation certificates at the moment is really, really high. Um, so, yeah, trying to capitalise on that as quickly as possible. So what what sort of power are we talking about? How much is it? How big is that? Um, the, Are you talking about three megawatts or something? So we've got three megawatts of solar PV going onto our campuses. I yeah. think it's going to go up to four by the end of 2020. Um, and then, yeah, basically being able to generate the certificates um, and while the market's high, uh, sell them off. And then uh, once the market starts to drop out, surrendering those so we can actually claim that we're 100% renewable. We've got two minutes left, Tim. What's the... Um significance of your program for the rest of us, the learnings about microgrids, grid stabilisation and so on? Yeah, look, so as a university, our core business is research and teaching. So we really push this agenda from our um, our buildings and property division, which is basically manages the, uh, uh, the all of the buildings and the estate of the campuses. Um, but by being able to tie it back to the research and teaching outcomes of the university through the microgrid and through using some innovative, innovative platforms, um, it actually made the story a lot stronger for the university executive and the university council. So um, being able to tie back the lessons learnt that we do from our process uh, into the teaching of the campus and into the research uh, is something that's really powerful and something we're really keen to do with our Net Zero initiative. Just on a personal note, have you got any electric vehicle charging stations or you made any allowances for electric vehicles on your campuses? Yeah, we've got a we've got a couple. We've recently installed three or four, I believe, um, on our Clayton campus. And essentially, um, yeah, really looking at tying those into our dynamic grid as well to be able to use the uh, batteries and loads of those um, within that. Uh, it's all part of the new network. So. Fantastic. Yeah, great. I'll be there. <laughs> With your i3. Thanks very much for your time today, Tim. Where can our listeners find out more? Um, so if you just uh, go on to Monash Net Zero Initiative um, and look that one up, you should be able to find it there uh, and get in contact if you need to. Great, thanks. And Will, what about listeners finding out about RageN? Yeah, so we've got a website, www.ragen.com, or alternatively, inquiries at ragen.com. I look at that inbox, so uh, drop a note and we'd love to speak to you all. Fantastic. Thank thanks. you very thanks. much, Will Both and Tim. We've been speaking to Will Mosley from Raygen and Tim Hoban from Monash University. They'll both be presenting at the BZE Electrifying Industry Summit in Melbourne on the, September the 13th. If you're interested in attending the summit, please go to the BZE webs- the website for the summit, electrifyingindustry.org.au. Next week, we'll continue to examine various aspects of the electrifying industry. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, you can go to the BZE website and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. 
Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.